Did anyone here ever learn an instrument? Uh, maybe you were forced to do piano lessons, a few hands. Anyone do middle school band? Okay, yeah, all right, so, several of you. Me, me too. Uh, I started piano in second grade. Uh, my parents, we had this junker, one of those great big, you know, it was like six foot tall. It was white. Paint was peeling. The ivories were, you know, like the tops of them were coming off. And that was the piano we had in our house. The middle school in my hometown was going to just junk it. They were going to throw it away. And my dad was an art teacher and uh, my mom an elementary teacher. And they're like, well, hey, we don't have a piano. We'll take it. And so they had this junker piano, and so I was in second grade, and I just started, like, teaching myself piano. And my parents were like, ah, maybe we actually need to start putting him in piano lessons. And so that's when it started, and I think about the next 14, 15 years, I studied piano and uh, actually majored in it in college and uh, in band, played oboe. Uh, that was my instrument, so I annoyed everyone with my little buzzy sound, uh, but played that all fifth grade through 12th grade. Um, and so music has been a big part of my life, but anyone here not studying music, like you're like, about the only thing I can play is the radio. Okay, yeah, I, I knew Nate. Okay, several of you. Okay, so I've got kind of a thrust today. And it uses music. And so i got to kind of catch you up, you non-musical people, so you can understand the rest of the message. All right? So music is comprised of a number of components. You know, the first thing we often think of with music are the notes. You know, it's the notes that are put together that create the melody line. So the, for most of us, we were just singing the melody. But you heard Karis up here. She was singing a counterpart, and that's called the harmony. And when you put multiple notes together, you create chords. So when... Uh, Sean was strumming the guitar, you're hearing multiple notes at the same time, or when you hear a keyboard played, they're creating chords. And most songs will have like this chordal structure to it. There's a pattern within it. But then you notice like we all could sing at the same speed. So there's a tempo to songs as well. And then there were lyrics, which we were supposed to be able to do together today, but Mr. TV isn't working for us. And so we kind of just, you know, did what we could today. But the lyrics are part of the song. But Fundamental to all of that is rhythm. If you don't have the rhythm to the song, then it, our, our melodies would just be a mess. We wouldn't know where to come in with the notes. All right, You wouldn't know when to strum your guitar to br- bring it in. We wouldn't know where to join in with the lyrics. We'd be singing at different points, and the song could just never catch on, and it would just kind of bumble into a mess. But when you have a rhythm going... And it just is moving along. You can get into a groove. And that's when different musicians can begin to join in with the song with their different instruments. And so you can end up with multiple percussionists because they understand the rhythm. You can have multiple guitarists because they know where to begin to add and and be a part of it. That's when people can join in with the song because, man, they get into the rhythm and it just clicks along. But the problem in life is that sometimes we get off rhythm. And it's not in music, it's in living. You see, I believe that God is trying to write a beautiful song through your life. He's orchestrating something tremendous. But when you live off rhythm, no one else can join your life song. And that's when you feel disconnected. Disconnected with your spouse, disconnected with your kids, disconnected at work, and most of all, disconnected with your God. But if we could get our lives into rhythm, if we could get in sync with God's heart, suddenly we'd find ourselves getting into a groove. And not only then do we feel connected with God, but other people begin to feel like they could connect within our life song as well. 
Last week I shared how, as we started this new you series, the mission of Riverwood is to invite the spiritually disconnected to find and follow Jesus. And I said, I can't do that all by myself. You know, here in Waverly, there's 10,000 people. I put the number really high. Let's say 5,000 people attend church. There's no way that I, Aaron Bird, by myself, could go and help 5,000 people find and follow Jesus. But if it began to be me helping you and then all of us going and being a blessing, we would end up just living this life in such a way that people would begin to get caught up in the rhythms of grace And they'd feel themselves drawn to Jesus, and they too would begin to find and follow Jesus and join in with God's song. And so that's what this new you series has been all about. It's trying to help you find the new you, the new self in Christ. And today we're going to talk about living in rhythm, finding the habits that are going to help us connect with God and really begin to click along through life so that other people are blessed by our lives and find themselves being drawn to this Jesus who died for them so that they too could find him and follow him and live in rhythm with God. And surprisingly, the way we're going to find this out is in the scriptures as we look at the first potential church split. What looked like a problem, what was about to interrupt the rhythm that the church had been in, we're actually going to see the importance of being in rhythm with God and how building habits into our life are going to help us overcome the times when we have problems that look like they're going to interrupt us, but actually could catapult us into something great. So we're going to be getting into the scriptures. And so before we dive in, let me pray. So God, we come now to your word. Uh, Ultimately, this is about you, not what I want to say. And so God, if there's anything that I'm about to say that is not in line with your heart, Would you just very kindly help each and every one of us to absolutely forget that? But if there are things that I'm saying that are just right in line with you and your truth, would you just help those things to get into our hearts, to get into our minds, and that you would help each and every one of us to find ourselves caught up in the rhythms of grace, to be caught up in your song, so that you sing something beautiful through us that's a blessing to others, and people would find themselves drawn to you because of who you are, what you've done, and that includes what you've done in our lives. So God, help us right now to have our hearts, our ears, our minds open to what you want to say. Help us think critically through these things, and may each of us walk away today feeling like we really got something that's going to help us in our spiritual journey with you. Help us to follow Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to jump into Acts chapter 6. So if you have a Bible or you've got a a Bible on your uh, phone, open it up to Acts chapter 6. But we're going to do a little bit of a Bible study later. So I need everyone to have a Bible. So if you don't have a Bible right now, what I need you to do is very kindly slip your hand up. And then, Justin, would you just grab the Bibles off the, the give table? All right, so I need everyone to get a Bible. All right, so your phone works. That counts. But... Right now, so, so just hold your hand up, okay? It looks like you need about three, four, okay? Four, all right. Um, what I'm reading from today is that black version, but the brown versions uh, are a really readable version, and that works just as well today. It's not so much the exact version as, as what we're going to see. Okay, so Acts chapter 6. If you're new to the Bible, Acts is in the New Testament, so kind of the back half of the uh, Bible, And it's right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that's where you find the book of Acts. If you start seeing things like Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, those are letters that Paul wrote to different churches. So find the book of Acts, all right? And we're going to head to chapter 6. Now, I need you to understand what happens here in chapter 6 and why it's such a big deal. So I'm going to give you just a little bit of background. 
Chapter 1 of the book of Acts kicks off. Jesus has risen from the dead. This book is written by a guy named Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. And really, you should read the Gospel of Luke right into the book of Acts. They are really just kind of one continuation. This is like Luke part two. All right? And so he starts off, Jesus is risen from the dead. He's out of the grave. He's been teaching his disciples a little bit more. And now he's ascending to heaven. And there in chapter 1, you see him give one last command. He says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you. You'll receive power. And you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, the gospel, the kingdom of God is going to spread. This gospel message is going to go all around the world. And then right there in front of the disciples, Jesus heads up to heaven. And then chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down upon them. And when the Holy Spirit arrives on the scene, it sounds like this huge rush of wind. It just sounds like a tornado tore through the city. And all these people are there for this Jewish feast called Pentecost. And so they hear this sound, so they rush to this building, and they hear the disciples all praising God in different languages. And it absolutely shocks them. But some people actually begin to make fun of them. They're like, oh, maybe they're all drunk. And Peter stands up and starts to preach to this entire crowd that's shown up and starts telling them about Jesus. Now, before this point, we estimate the church was about 120 people. It was Jesus' 12 disciples, maybe some of their connections. It was some of Jesus' family, some other people that had begun to attach on. But we think it was around 120 people that at this point are saying, we believe Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2, tells everyone about Jesus— And 3,000 people believe what Peter says, and they decide to follow Jesus themselves. So you go from a small country church of about 120 people to a mega church of 3,000. And that's just the beginning. If you continue on in chapter 2, you see the church loving each other, caring for each other. And it says that God was adding to their numbers daily. So it wasn't just staying stagnant at 3,000 people. Like, it just keeps growing. And if you get into chapter 4, you see the same thing. The church is loving each other. They're caring for each other. People are selling land and possessions and donating the money so food can be bought. and No one would have a need. And so God just continued to add to their number daily. So it's in the midst of all this tremendous growth, this, this tremendous momentum, the church is in a phenomenal rhythm. And now suddenly, the first with internal church issue arises and has the potential to stop the church in its tracks and disrupt everything. That's what starts chapter 6. So, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, As I said, in chapter 2 and chapter 4, you see stories of people caring for each other, selling possessions, that they're making sure that no one has need. So in that process, they start seeing these widows who have no husband, their husband has passed away, and they now have no way to really get food or income because their husbands would have been the ones out getting the job, earning the money so they could buy the food or they're raising the food themselves. And now the widows find themselves in need. And the church says, you have no husband, we'll be your husband will love you, will care for you, and they begin this system, if you will, of providing for the widows. But something began to happen. The Hellenists, the word Hellenists there, that refers to Jews that were Greek in culture and background. They were still Jewish, but they were more Greek in who they were. But the majority of Jews were more Hebraic. They were more tied in Hebrew language and Hebrew culture. And what was happening was as they're distributing the food— 
a little more of it seems to be going to the Hebrews and not as much or even none at all are going to the Greek Jews. And so a bunch of the other Hellenists are going, well, well wait a second, that, that's not fair. And now this has a, po- a possibility to disrupt everything. It has the po- potential to ruin the reputation because when you go back in chapters 2 and chapters 4, you see the church has this phenomenal reputation of loving and caring. That's part of what's drawing people to the church. And now suddenly, whoa, you got like race, racism going on. There's discrimination. That doesn't sound very caring. And it's also working against the gospel. Because they, as these Jews, believed that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. He was the completion of the Jewish religion. So there's no more need to go and sacrifice animals. Jesus paid it all. And so he's died for all these Jews. But now through their actions, it's almost like they're saying, oh, but maybe he really died more for the Hebrews than the Greeks. And so this actually has gospel implications. And it has the potential to slow everything down and kind of ruin it all. So what are they going to do in the midst of this? They're facing a really, really big moment. Have you ever faced a really big moment? You know that whatever happens after this moment, whatever decision you make, it's going to change everything. For you married ladies, it may have been the moment when your husband got down on his knee and proposed, and you realized what you were about to say next was going to change everything. Now, hopefully, most of you were like in tears going, yes, of course, I want my future with you. Now, you could have been like my wife, who's like, oh, let's think about this. Uh, I had to wait two weeks to get a yes. You know, because she knew, whatever I say here, this changes everything. If you were an athlete, you would know the big moment is there in the championship game. It's on the line. If you're a baseball player, it's the bottom of the ninth. There's two outs, bases loaded, and you need to hit a home run to drive in the winning run and win the game for your team. Alex Gordon uh, had that opportunity in the World Series. Game one, the Mets are up on my Royals. He steps to the plate, two outs, no one on base. They're down by one run, and he hits a home run to dead center that ties the game, takes it into extra innings where they began to win and they won game one and went on to win the whole World Series. Alex Gordon became a free agent. Every Royals fan was saying, sign him, sign him. I don't care how much money. You got to get the guy because in the big moment, he came through. Alex Gordon's name will live on in legend as one of the greatest Kansas City Royals baseball players ever because in the big moment, he came through. But if you're there at the free throw line, Game's tied, two seconds on the clock. You've got to sink this shot to give your team a chance to win. And when you miss it, your name doesn't go into legend. Your name goes into infamy. You become the guy who didn't come through. So how do you prepare for the big moment? Well, if you're an athlete, it's practice over and over and over. I mean, it's practicing the swing. It's learning how to read the ball when it's coming in. Is that a fastball? Is that a curveball? And you just got to learn how to get your body into motion. Basically, you're teaching your body a rhythm so that when that pitch comes, you're not thinking about, okay, lift the foot, step, plant, twist through. No, it happens naturally. It just flows. You're in a rhythm. The disciples have been in a rhythm. And so when this big problem comes to them, they have to decide, do we go through with the rhythms we've already been doing, or do we have to make a change? 
Somewhere between verse 1 and verse 2, something happens. Verse 1 is the Hellenists coming before the 12 to the elders of this burgeoning megachurch saying, there's a problem. There's racism going on. Our widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food, and this is wrong. If you don't fix it, we're out. And now it's going to destroy everything. I wonder what the disciples, I'm sorry, the 12 apostles were feeling at that moment. I wonder if there wasn't one or two of them sitting there going, are you kidding me? Like, this is no big deal. And just wanting to ignore the issue. Maybe one or two were frustrated. Like, how in the world could racism come into our church? I mean, we've just had this purity going on. And now this? Maybe one or two of them thought for a second, like, hey, I could, I could like fix this myself. A little bit of a Messiah complex. And they're thinking, I could rush in. I could, I could provide the systems needed and I'll save the day. But somehow between the period of verse one and the first letter of verse two, there's a conversation. And these 12 guys get together and somehow in their talking, they realize we can't do this. And that's what we see in verses two through four. Here's what they, they come up with together. And the twelve, the apostles, the elders of the church, they summoned the full number of the disciples, all the church members, and said, so this is a big church meeting, all right? You got three, four thousand people gathering together. And the disciples said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They were saying, all right, church family, we've been in a rhythm. God has been doing some tremendous things through us. And our fear is that if we stop with the rhythms of the word and of prayer, what's going to happen is we get caught up in the rhythms of trying to serve these widows to keeping this thing going, and it's going to cause this church to halt but that's not the task that Jesus gave us. Jesus gave us the 12. We spent those three years with him for a reason. He was investing in us, discipling us, training us up for this moment right here. We were to be about the word and we were to be about prayer so that we could help you go and change the world. So they're saying, guys, we've got to stay in the rhythms that we're in. But notice they weren't saying, oh, but the issue that's going on here... <laughs> So it's no big deal. Just forget it. No, they're saying this is a big deal. In fact, it's such a big deal. Notice the type of people they ask for. I, I think that if, if, you know, say Riverwood grows and God blesses us with a chance to do a ministry like this. Say we were providing food for people. I think that if we had a problem like this, we'd be saying, hey, we've got a, a, a a potential and opportunity for you. If you have a gift of like systems administration we could use you. If you are a foodie, if you love to cook and make food, we have an opportunity for you. If you have a passion for the elderly or for widows, we have an opportunity for you. And I don't think that would be a wrong response. I think that would be fine. But this is a baby church with a bunch of baby Christians who are just beginning to understand Jesus as the Messiah. And they're just beginning to understand what this all means and how to live their life and how the gospel impacts everything. That they don't just ask for any warm body. They don't just ask for anyone who's willing to help. They say, we need men 
who are of good repute, good character. We need the most upstanding, outstanding guys that are among us. Not only that, of good character, they need to be full of the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. You are filled with the Holy Spirit when you place your faith in Jesus. So they're saying these are guys that have to know Jesus. They've got to be passionate for him. They're Jesus-centered. Their identity is in that. And not only that, are they followers of Jesus? It says they've got to be full of wisdom. Are they the type of guys that you would turn to for advice? Do they seem to know the scriptures? This is who we want to oversee this. Because this is such a big deal. This has gospel implications. So we basically need elder-type men to oversee this and care for this. So they weren't poo-pooing it. They're saying it's a big deal. So here's who we need to lead it. But we ourselves cannot step out of the rhythms we've been in. Because it's these rhythms we've been doing that have allowed the church to thrive and grow and make the difference that it is. Our church is a blessing to the city. And for us to continue, we, the leaders, have to stay in these rhythms, in these habits. All right, so they've stepped up to the plate. The problem has been coming. Do they connect? That's verses 5 and 6. And what they, the apostles, the twelve, said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These men they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So I think they connected. This idea, this plan pleased the people. It's like the bat hit the ball. And one of the things I love about this is this helps me to give you an opportunity to understand some of the heart behind Riverwood. We talk about wanting to be a Jesus-centered community. And some of the characteristics we want of our church is that we want to be a Jesus-centered community of grace, truth, and trust. We want to lead with grace towards all people. Just as God has given us grace, forgiven us of our sins, we want to lead with grace in our relationships with other people. Right? So that's why we say we don't worry so much about your past as much as we worry about your next steps. It doesn't matter so much what you've done, but what are you going to do? Because Jesus didn't come for the righteous, those who clean up their act. He came for messy sinners. So I don't care how much you've messed up in life. There is grace, and you can begin to grow. There's forgiveness, and God wants to call you into a beautiful relationship with him. But we don't just lead with grace. We also lean on truth. We lean on the truth of the gospel. We lean on the truth of the scripture. That's why each Sunday we get together, we open it up, we study it. We want to lean on this truth because we think this is going to catapult us into doing some great things in people's lives so that we can go and continue to lead with grace. But in that process of leading with grace and leaning on truth, we also want to be a people of trust. I think most people, when they hear that, they envision that means that we want to trust God. And it's true, we do. We want to trust him. But it has a double meaning in my heart and mind. I want to see us as a church family not just live in faith, live in trust of God, but also that we entrust ministry to other people. In other words, we don't just hog the spotlight for ourselves. You, you find an area of ministry that you just love, you're thriving, it's going great, and suddenly it's like, I love this so much, I don't want to share. I don't want anyone else to take it from me. And you begin to hoard it and hog it all to yourself. What you're doing is you're taking the spotlight and you're shining it on you. Instead, what we want to have as our heartbeat is that when you see other people, so say, say you're serving in Kids Creek and you see someone else who loves kids, they just seem to connect with them. You invite them in and say, hey, 
do you want to come and get involved? And you begin to try and raise them up. And in a sense, you begin to shine the spotlight on them. Because ultimately, you're shining the spotlight on Jesus. Because what you're doing is you're saying, God, I trust you to move your ministry forward. And I'm not the only one who can do it. And so you could be a greeter at the door. You meet someone who's really, really friendly. And you say, hey, would you have any interest in being a greeter with me? And you begin to invite them in, raise them up, and help them to do the ministry. Or you're a small group leader, and you see someone in your group who just has this heart to care for other people. And you say, hey, would you have any interest in being a small group apprentice of just learning how to lead this? Because I think you could do a really good job. And you begin to try to entrust ministry to them. That's exactly what the 12 did here. Rather than trying to micromanage this whole thing, they say, hey, pick seven from among you, put them here before you, we're going to pray for them, and then we're just going to release them to lead. We're going to let the spotlight go on them. And so these guys got to be the heroes. They got to be the ones to go and fix this whole broken system. And now the Hellenists are no longer being overlooked in the distribution of food. Everyone's being cared for because the 12 said, here you go. We prayed for these seven. They're now yours. They're going to lead because we have to continue with the rhythms that God has given us. So they've stepped up to the plate. They've obviously connected. It pleased the people. But did they come through? I mean, did they get just a single? Like, did they just get on base? What happened? Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. These guys did not just connect with the ball, and they did not even just hit a home run. These guys knocked this thing out of the entire stadium. If this was Candlestick Park in San Francisco, this ball is in the bay. All right, it is out there. It's gone. They knocked it out of the park because the church continued to grow. It continued to multiply. And I would love to see Riverwood be an Acts 6-7 church. I want to see us be a place where the word of God continues to increase. I want to see us be a place where the number of disciples are multiplied greatly. Last Sunday, uh, someone marked on their card that they, were follow, they wanted to follow Jesus for the first time. They even marked on there, if you remember, we sang that song at communion, I Surrender. They even marked on there, I Surrender. We followed up this week, and it's true. It's genuine. Someone last week said, I want to follow Jesus for the first time. It's happening. Acts 6-7 is happening in our midst. But I don't want it to stop there with just one or two. I, I even want it to be, it says that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Priests who were raised up in Judaism, who probably heard that this Jesus guy was trying to wreck uh, Judaism. He's going to ruin it all. He's claiming to be the Messiah. Oh, they killed him on a cross, and now these crazies are claiming he rose from the dead. But wow, look at the way that church lives. Something's going on, and they start listening, and they start studying, and they start realizing it's true. Jesus really is the Jewish Messiah. And even the most unlikely, these priests, begin to follow Jesus. And I would love for us to be a church family who sees even the most unlikely of people choose to follow Jesus. But in order for us to be an Acts 6-7 type of church, we have to be in rhythm. We've got to be in the rhythm of the heart of God. So what are the habits that you need in your life to get there? What, what are the habits that you need to have? Because when you don't live in rhythm, you get things off. Have you ever um, been asked at work to maybe work extra hours? 
And inside you're thinking, oh, that, some extra money. Maybe it'll get me ready for a promotion. You know, you think this will be a good thing. But what happens is you say yes to the rhythm of more work hours, and it begins to disrupt the family rhythm. It disrupts your parenting rhythm. It disrupts your other rhythms in life. And so you find yourself, you've made the mistake. Or maybe it was, you're being too flirtatious with someone at work. And now it's interrupted the marriage rhythms. Uh, just this week, uh, I, I knew last year, there's a, a I'm not going to say his name, but you could probably go online and find it, but a Christian recording artist, he and his wife, who was also a Christian recording artist, they got divorced after 13 years of marriage. And I knew this had happened last year. Well, this year with 2016 starting on January 1st, he put on his blog. He just felt like he had to come clean. He just needed to let people know and basically apologize to his fans and say, I let you down. And it's because he met an old friend and an affair started up and it was discovered and it ruined the rhythms of his marriage. His marriage came to an end. And so he was on his blog basically saying, if you find yourself at all in that sort of relationship, don't do it. It's not worth it. I speak from experience. It will wreck the rhythms of your life. So don't give in to that. You keep the rhythms that are going to keep you connected to the heart of God and to the heart of your spouse. So what are the habits that you need in your life to stay connected to God, your family, and really to stay connected to yourself? Well, here's how I want you to think of it. I want you to think of terms of four rhythms, all right? Think in terms of a daily rhythm. What are the daily rhythms you need to have? What are the weekly rhythms that you need in your life? What are the monthly rhythms? And then are there any quarterly or like yearly rhythms that you need to have? All right, so let's, we're going to break these down. We're going to walk through these. First, your daily rhythm. I think for you to really connect with God, you should have a daily rhythm of the Bible and prayer. It's, it's almost like breathing in, in the Christian life. You breathe in from God through the scriptures and you breathe out through prayer. And that's not totally accurate because I think that in prayer it's this conversation with God. And so it, that itself is breathing. But, but you understand the idea. Now, last week, as we talked about having new leadership in our lives, we've talked about how to set up Jesus as our key leader we need to have a plan. We've got to have a plan for prayer, and we've got to have a plan for scripture reading. So that's why last week we rolled out some uh, different Bible reading um, plans. If you didn't get one of those, you don't have a plan for 2016 for reading the scripture, just go to our website, weareriverwood.org, look for the resources button, go down to freebies, and you can find some different Bible reading plans. Some of them are pretty robust. One of those plans, it's really tight and stringent. It's going to get you through the whole entire Bible in a year. Some of them, they're a little more flexible. If you're like, whoa, I've never read the Bible before, that sounds really overwhelming and intense to like read the whole Bible in a year, then look for the 28-day New Testament overview bookmark, right? 28 days, one month, and you'll get a great idea of the general doctrines of the New Testament, and the readings are a little shorter. I want to see each and every one of you in the scriptures. If you're brand new at this, I'm not expecting you to read three to five chapters every day it'd be better for you to read a section and to get something out of it. If you've been following Jesus for a while, maybe you need something a little more. This year, I'm going back to a reading plan that I did a, a couple years ago. I grew tremendously through it, and it's pretty intense. And so I got away from it, and this year, for 2016, I'm like, I've got to get back to it. So I'm going back. It basically requires me to read about three chapters a day. But what if you're saying, okay, three chapters a day, that's a lot. I don't know a lot about the Bible. Maybe I should just focus on the shorter sections. That's fine. Good. But what do you do? What's a rhythm that you should be in? 
And so today, I want to walk you through a very basic Bible study. So everyone's got their Bibles, right? We're already open up to Acts chapter 6, and we're going to apply the acronym SOAP. All right, I'm stealing this from a guy named Wayne Cordero. He's a pastor in Hawaii, where I doubt they're having weather like this today. And he has been using soap for, oh man, probably like 30, 40 years. He's been in ministry a long time. And he just does this daily. And he actually has walked multiple people through it and trained up pastors through using the soap method. It stands for scripture, observation, application, and prayer. I'll say those again. Soap, S-O-A-P, scripture, observation, application, and prayer. So the first thing you do, well, I would actually put a P before so, make it a silent P. Uh, But I would open up a prayer. I'd say, God, I'm about to enter into the scriptures. I want you to teach me today. All right, so just open up in simple prayer, and then you read the scripture. So we're going to do that right now. Acts 6, 1 through 7. We've already looked at it once, but let's hear it again. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So you've read through the scripture. You might want to read through it a second time. If you're using a phone and you're on the YouVersion app, maybe flip over to a different translation. Read through it again. But then you start asking yourself observation questions. What do I see? What jumps out at me? Do I see any patterns here? Right? For instance, when I, when I was studying this this week, I noticed in verse 1, it says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. But then later, as you go down to verse 7, you see it says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied. So it's almost like there were bookends. There's this time of tremendous growth. Now suddenly something's happened that could slow them down, but it doesn't. And now they're continuing to increase. And so I saw these like bookends. That jumped out at me. Maybe as you read through there, something jumps out at you. Maybe it's verse 1. You realize, wow, racism is really wrong. Like, That just really could interrupt a church. Racism does not belong in God's church. Maybe that's one thing you observe. Maybe it's the approach of the disciples, how they call all the people together. And that helps you realize, like, oh, church isn't supposed to be just like these elders telling everyone exactly what to do, controlling their life. Like, there was this unity among them. But yet, it wasn't a democracy. It wasn't like, okay, guys, we got this problem. What do you think? You know, it was these leaders leading, but yet they include the people in it. Maybe you see that. Maybe as you read through there, you're, you're observing that the disciples, they say, we've got to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And that makes you realize, wow, the scriptures are really important, but so is also prayer. Like, these guys have this big opportunity in front of them, and yet they're saying, 
It's not as big as studying the scriptures and being in prayer. Maybe that's one thing you observe. Maybe you observe the, the level of leadership they ask for. And so you look at guys like Stephen, and you see how he's described as being a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And you're asking yourself, what's that mean for me to be that way? You know, so you just walk through and you observe. What do you see? What patterns do you notice? Are there words that repeat throughout? Just what is in there, okay? But that is just getting you information, But this is to ultimately be about transformation. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It's not just we read this for our information and get our head full of Bible knowledge. It's to impact our hearts and make our lives overflow and be a blessing to others. So now you've got to move from observation to application. And that means you need to ask, what does this mean and what should I do? Now, when you ask what what, what does this mean, the natural question to ask is, what does this mean for me? All right? We're Americans. We're individualistic. We live these kind of selfish lives. And so it's very easy for us to jump to a place of saying, well, what does this mean for me? And we're going to get to that. But there's this little thing that you jump over that can lead to danger where you begin to just interpret the Bible through your 20th century lens and thinking it's all about you. And what you're forgetting is that God actually wrote this for an original audience. It meant something to someone else. What was his original intent? So try and ask yourself, what would this mean to them? Now, that probably means there's going to be some additional study. You might need to use things like Bible.org. I would encourage you, go to Lumina.Bible.org, and there's all sorts of Bible tools. I use it every single week when I work on my messages for this. There's even more robust tools, but that one is is a great one for you. Lumina.Bible.org. And and there's probably, in fact, there's way more for me, so I guarantee there'd be way too much for you. And yet you'll probably learn a lot. It's really, really good. So lumina.bible.org. Understand what was the original intent? What was it for the first audience? Because I believe that God embedded truth in there for the original audience that is also for you today. God has had followers ever since Jesus died on a cross, rose again from the dead, and people have been following Jesus ever since. And he's been communicating to them through the scriptures. And so, first ask, what did it mean to the original audience? Then ask yourself, so what does that mean for us today? But not only what does it mean for us today, but now, what should I do? What do I need to do in light of what I've just read? Now, here's the thing. Each and every one of us are at a different place in our spiritual walk. Some of you here, you may be saying, I'm not so sure about Jesus. I'm still trying to study this, figure this out. Great. I'm glad you're here. I want to encourage you to continue to look at Jesus. Maybe you're like our friend who last week said, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. So she's now on this brand new journey of following Christ. Awesome. Wonderful. Maybe you're saying, yeah, I'm following Jesus, but Aaron, this, this is all still really new to me. The Bible's new. Church is new. You know, I'm excited about this new faith I have, but it's still new. Right? We're all at different places spiritually. And we are all each different genres. To bring back the music metaphor, some of you, you're like rock music. You are in and out. I mean, you just go hard, you go after it, and you're done. Some of you, you're like country music. You're a little more laid back. Maybe you're like jazz. You're just it's spontaneous. You improvise everything. Right? Maybe you're like classical music. It's a little more structured. You're really reliable. You kind of know what you're going to get, right? Every single one of you are designed differently by God. 
And that is a beautiful thing because as those differences come together, that creates the body of Christ and we all benefit from it. But you've got to keep that in mind in your pursuit of Jesus. The thing is, whether you are more jazz or more rock or more pop or however you would consider yourself, there's still a rhythm. There's still a structure to the song. And that's why you still need these rhythms. Your rhythm might be a little different than someone else's, but I still think you need a daily rhythm of Bible and prayer. Maybe you are not a morning person. And so to try and get up early to get into the scriptures, you're just going to fall back asleep. So maybe you need to do it during your lunch hour. Maybe you need to do it right after supper. Maybe you're a night owl and it's like, you know what? I'm going to close up homework, pull out my Bible, spend some time with God before I go to sleep. Find the best rhythm for you. Get in the scriptures daily, but when's the best time? What's the right rhythm in your life? Understand how God's wired you, how he's made you, and figure out how to bring those rhythms then into your life. Because this, again, is about connecting with God. So understand the rhythms of how you're made. What kind of genre are you? But get into the scriptures. And if you don't know what to do, you're feeling like, I'm brand new, then just do soap. Get into the scriptures. Observe what do I do. Apply it to your life. What do I do in light of what I've read? And then the P, you pray. You just say, all right, God, you've just shown me what I need to do. Oh, I was going to share with, with you mine. Um, as I was reading through this this week, being the leader for Riverwood, I just couldn't help but identify with the 12 apostles and how they were, they were leading their church and just how they said that they need to give themselves to the word and to prayer. And right now at the stage of Riverwood, I realize I'm doing a lot for our church family. Just wondering, are there things that I need to be given up to let others be more a part of this? And so I felt challenged there. But then also I just felt so challenged when they said they needed to be out the, the ministry of the word and prayer. I tell you guys often, I pray for you. And it's true, I do. But I realized I'm more of a strobe light prayer. I'm kind of just flashing. I'm, you know, at my part-time job working, driving in the van, and something comes to mind. And so I'll pray. You know, I'll, I'll be studying the scriptures during the week, getting ready for Sundays, and one of you will pop to mind. And so I'll stop and I'll, I'll pray for you. But I realize I'm like a strobe light. I'm pray, off, pray, off, pray, off. And I realize that's good, that's fine. But what I need to also do is have a little bit of spotlight prayer where I just shine the spotlight on God. I just sit and bask in his glory and I just connect with him. And so one of the things I feel challenged with is, can I just spend five minutes or 10 minutes and just prayer with God? Because I found there are other times when I've done that, they've been wonderful and fruitful. But so often I get into the scriptures, I'll study it, and then I get excited about something, and then boom, my laptop's out, and I'm working on Riverwood stuff, and I haven't spent the time to just stop and pray. So what do you need to do? And once you know what you need to do, that's what you pray about. So for me, it's saying, all right, God, help me to be a man of prayer, because this is what you've called me to. These are some of the daily rhythms. I think there's other daily rhythms that you can include. I'm not going to go into a lot of them, but one I thought of was sleep. How can you use sleep as a daily rhythm? Because when you get good quality sleep, you'll be able to better connect with your spouse. There'll probably be a few less arguments. You'll probably better be able to parent. You'll be a little more patient and understanding and know what's going on with the kids. But you'll also have a little better chance of connecting with God because you're going to not fall asleep while you're talking to him in prayer. But also, you're going to just be a little more ready to listen, to be there. So how can you make sleep a daily rhythm and really care for yourself? Food, that's another daily rhythm. Almost all of us eat every single day. How can you turn your meal times into 
a spiritual connection. Maybe it's finding a coworker who just seems down and once a week inviting them out for lunch just so you can connect with them. Use the meal time to be a blessing to someone else. Or maybe it's fasting. Maybe once a week, and this is kind of getting into weekly rhythms, but maybe once a week you say, you know what, I'm going to not eat this particular meal so that I can open up more time for myself to spend in the scriptures and in prayer. And, and that's another thing then, is moving from daily rhythms to thinking about weekly rhythms. What spiritual uh, weekly rhythms can you put in your life? I think Sundays are a natural one. Just coming and gathering together with other people to proclaim to Jesus words through songs that lyrics will hopefully be on the screen. But also, how can you just connect through hearing the word and studying it together? And and then getting into a growth group. We're going to start two growth groups this year. We're going to have one on Thursday nights. We're going to have one on Sunday afternoons. Right? The groups are just starting. The Sunday uh, afternoon group is going to start next Sunday. The Thursday group starts this week. Can you make it a daily rhythm? I mean, uh, sorry, a weekly rhythm. It's hard, I know, if you haven't been doing it, to incorporate that into your life. But once you do it, you get into that rhythm, suddenly you find yourself growing spiritually. You're connecting with God. You're connecting with others. And then you see God doing great things in you as he then begins to do great things through you. So can you incorporate that into your weekly rhythms? What other weekly rhythms do you need to include? Maybe you and your spouse need some sort of date. It it could just be sitting on the couch and talking eye-to-eye, face-to-face about your week. And that might be the connection you need to really help the rhythm of your marriage grow. What, what about your kids? You know, do you and your kids need to do something fun? Like our family, we do Sunday nights. It's, just, it's family night. No homework, no Riverwood work. Computers are shut down, and it's sometimes watching a movie. Sometimes it's playing games. It usually involves a lot of popcorn, occasionally some candy. You know, it's just we connect as a family, and that's become an important rhythm in our lives. In fact, we used to do it on Monday nights years ago. And then we switched it to Sunday nights, and the kids all complained about it because it disrupted the rhythm. They're like, wait, this feels like Monday now. You know, and it took a while. Now we're so used to Sundays. If we switched it again, they'd probably all complain. Wait, is this Sunday? What's tomorrow? Because it became a rhythm, and we began to value it. It became so important. So what are the weekly rhythms that you need, right? You might be looking at exercise. You could be looking at um, you know, other things. What are the weekly rhythms that you need to connect with God? connect with your family, to connect with others, and just to feel connected yourself, all right? Monthly rhythms. What are some monthly rhythms you could do? Maybe you could fast once a month for a whole day. You just say, all right, the third Thursday of every month, no food is to remind me that my life is not dependent upon food. I know some of you are looking at me like, uh, no, Aaron, that's not going to happen. Maybe we need the reminder that ah, man does not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. And so you say for once a month, I'm going to fast. I used to do a monthly retreat, working two jobs right now. It's been really, really difficult to maintain. But man, those became so important. And I could feel it. If I missed a month, oh, the rhythms just got off. And finally, these monthly rhythms of just connecting with God. What are the monthly rhythms you need? And then quarterly or or yearly. Maybe your family needs yearly to just go away, get on a vacation, to get that time away and connect together. Uh, For me, uh, once a year, I go away on a spiritual retreat. I ask for time off from work. I go away for a couple of nights, and I just connect with God through scriptures. I read, some music's involved, and man, I come back just refreshed. And my family looks at me like, hey, you're smiling again. You know, it's so good. What are the yearly or quarterly rhythms that you need? You're each a different genre. You're each at a different place spiritually. I can't give you a prescription But you, by praying, talking to God, you can begin to figure out what are some rhythms that are going to help you connect with God. 
Do not turn this into some sort of legalistic to-do list. That will just kill off your spiritual growth like nothing else. But if you're going to read your Bible and you're going to actually say, all right, God, I'm observing these things now. What do you want me to do in light of this? How are you trying to shape me and mold me? then please get into the scriptures, get into a rhythm. Because as you get in these rhythms, God begins to shape you and mold you into the new you, into the image of Jesus, so that you will then go and you'll love like Jesus loved and you'll live like Jesus lived and you will be a blessing to others. And out of the overflow of your life, people are going to be drawn to you and the rhythms in which you live. And they too might one day decide to find and follow Jesus and get caught up in the rhythms of God. So, Father, I just pray that you, you would help each and every one of us to know what to do with what we've just heard. That you're inviting us into these rhythms. And I pray, Father, you would give us the, the boldness to do what we need to. If that means changing up some things in our life now, help us to do it. And help us to get into a rhythm so that when the difficult moments come, when we are faced with a crisis, when something tries to present itself to us, and we realize that in that big moment, the decision we make will affect the trajectory of our life and affect our future. If we have been in the rhythms, we've established these habits in our lives, we will then see you do something great in us and through us. And it won't be us hitting the home run. It'll be you. And you will get the glory as we get the joy of seeing you do what only you can do. So God, help each and every one of us to know what to do with this and how to establish these rhythms in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.